Hey everybody, what's up? I am so grateful to be in your ears again today. Again, it's Chase, your friend, your host, your guide for the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. Super grateful to be in your ears. I don't take it for, for granted, not even for a second, not even a millisecond. Super happy to have you here with me today because I am going to open your mind today. This is a promise. This is not, I think, I hope, I... If today's conversation does not open your mind, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. We're going to have to have a talk. The guest on today's show, my guest, is Michael Hebb. Like so many people on the show, Michael is a multi-hyphenate, right? That's, that's a characteristic that we see of the people on the show that once you've mastered one thing, you're able to parlay that into other things, and Michael is no exception. Uh, Michael and I have been friends for 10 years, and I know him in so many disciplines, one as an artist, He's an amazing and talented artist across a number of genres. Two, as an activist, he's been active. So many uh, conversations, politically, culturally, and otherwise. Uh, he's also a, a well-known restaurateur, an amazing chef, a restaurateur. He started the underground food movement, underground restaurant movement out of Portland long before the, the term farm to table existed. But what we're specifically talking about in today's conversation Again, it's something I promise is going to expand your mind, and that is we're going to talk about death and mortality. And right now you're going, whoa, 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 I thought this was a podcast about creativity and entrepreneurship. This is going to be a masterclass lesson how to think about the arc of creating a living and a life that you love so that at the end of days, when you realize that your time on this planet is done, you will have lived the life you want. And he is the, the author of a book that's just, we're the first press that he's done on this book. And, and I promise he'll be a New York Times bestseller and he will be all over the news for this book. It's very provocative. The title of it is Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. We cover two important topics in depth and that is self-awareness. That is knowing why you tick, knowing what makes you tick. What is the relationship that you have with your past, with your present, and where you want to go. That is so crucial for, for a life well lived. And also human connection. How is it that you connect meaningfully with other people? And without you know, giving away the, the, the core part of our talk, Michael's theory and his hypothesis is in having hard conversations like the one about how we end our life, what is it that we can derive about how to better do those two things. Michael and I have been friends for 10 years. We've spent hundreds if not thousands of hours together in countries all over the world. We've pulled all-nighters together. We've created projects from the ground up. We've just, it's just, you can hear the authenticity in the, in the immediate connection that we have. And you'll find this conversation provocative, evocative, and I believe, <laughs> if, if nothing, therapeutic. You get to understand a little bit about the human condition from listening to Michael, and you'll be able to apply it to so many areas of your life. That's what I think is the takeaway here, is how the conversation and the thought about death and dying can be a positive, huge force for shaping the life that you want to live. So I'm going to get out the way, and before I do, just a quick word from our sponsor. New sponsor alert. Check this out, y'all. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is sponsored by Creative Live for Business. This is different than the regular old Creative Live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work, or it's sort of like meh, 
Or on the other side, if, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Live's content for your entire team and or entire company and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or, or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com slash teams. Remember, most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world on Creative Live. So What's up, buddy? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so we've had thousands of conversations on couches all over the world yep. at various times of day and night. Um, and we so have, I wonder how many continents we've been on together. It's a few. Yeah. <laughs> many. <laughs> and so I think this is going to be a special discussion. I, I feel like... I think about the show as being special because I prepare for it. I feel like we have amazing guests, but the fact that you and I have the history that we have, um, hopefully we, we can go from zero to 100 miles an hour for the listener, listener um, with basically zero effort. So your background, we were talking about, you know, one of my favorite things is that people on this show have, they span a crazy array of yeah. backgrounds. Um, that basically everybody I try and introduce is some sort of a hyphen. No one's just like <laughs> volleyball star. You know, that's like not a thing. It's right. like hyphen, hyphen, hyphen. Um, and there are many things that we could say about your background. We chose to say artist, activist, um, and now uh, about to be New York Times bestselling author. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, let's let's but put that under the universe. We, we know one another originally from events around food and culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so in your own words, how, you know, give me a little bit of the arc of how you got here, your, your backstory, and how we're sitting here on this couch. Well, we're not on a couch, actually, we're in two chairs. Yeah, <laughs> two, two chairs. But just like frame, yeah. frame for us, because you can be so many things, and you are a chameleon and multi-talented, multifaceted artist, but so just tell us a little bit of story about how you got here, and we'll form our own opinions. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, well, I mean, kind of similar to you, it started in um, a field that um, doesn't look like the field that you're in now. You yeah. started in philosophy, yeah, right? And, right. Then, yep. and, then, and then ended up with a camera in your hand. Um, my background is in classics and architecture, right? That's what I studied. Um, and, and then I, when I was 21, um, I uh, opened an architecture firm, um, left architecture school and opened an architecture firm in Portland with um, star architect Mark Lakeman. Um, and then we also started this nonprofit um, uh, kind of guerrilla architecture in initiative, or I guess not even kind of, very much guerrilla architecture initiative called City Repair, um, which was um, we created City Repair with the idea that we wanted to, without invitation or permission, um, fix the city in the ways that we saw fit. 
Um, so looking at like this, this architecture mindset of, um, of design. So really like, and sure, from foundational, foundational design, design, like what is the world that I want to live in? You know, what is, the, what is the distance between the world that I'm living in and the world that I want to live in, right? Okay, what's that chasm and then how do I cross that adaptive valley? Like that scary place, personally. Yep. Right? <laughs> and as a city, right? You're making culture in that. Yeah, like Portland, and Portland, this was before Portland was Portlandia, before <laughs> Portland was weird, before Portland was like any of those. It was just a um, northwest logging town. Yeah, it was a shithole, yeah. right? You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I mean, sorry, but yeah. Portland and Seattle were ugly kind of backwaters, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, 20 years ago, yeah. Yeah, and so, um, which gives you a great deal of opportunity, right? Because there was nothing going on, there was no eyes on us, and yeah. so... Mark and I started doing things like turning whole um, neighborhood intersections into piazzas, into Italian piazzas by painting like 50, um, or no, sorry, 500 foot um, Anasazi symbols of life um, across the whole um, intersection, right? Without um, getting permission from the city. So the city woke up one day and all of a sudden an intersection in Selwood was turned into um, this huge, um, uh, you know, painting, this mural on the street on the asphalt, and we'd ripped up the corners and put in 24-hour tea stations and clubhouses for the kids, and like, uh, you know, all of these things, but with consensus yeah. from the neighbors. Um, and but not the city. But not the city. Yeah, we, we forgot to invite them to the party, um, and so they got really pissed off, right? Um, like, you know, what in the fuck is this, um, and who do we put in handcuffs, kind of thing, and who's going to pay for this? And the mayor at the time, Mayor Vera Katz, um, was like, hold, you know, hold everything. Um, you idiots, they've actually done all of the things I've asked you to do with your community engagement projects. They've created consensus, they've created um, local networks, they've created art and culture, and they've solved, they're probably gonna need less services from the city. They've become less expensive by breaking our laws and you want to find them, like, this is what I've asked you to, you know, so there's this yeah. incredible upheaval, and, um, and we ended up getting a one-year um, temporary um, permit to run this project, and now there's 15,000 of them around the world. So um, a couple things I learned from that was um, civil disobedience is essential um, and fun um, and scary. Um, transgression um, is very important, but you better know what the fuck you're doing, right? Like, if you're going to break the law, um, have a very good design, um, have it really well thought out, know your history. Um, and so I think that um, what I learned from that was, um, you know, these lessons, but also that I can have a major impact, right? And I can create models that go way beyond um, the, the one instance, right? Think, yep. Yeah, and you, you know, we've talked about this for, sure. for years. How do you, instead of just creating art or culture, how do you enable others to create art and culture? Which I think is, you know, at the core of Creative Live, it's the core For sure. of the work. Um, and so that became an essential part of my work early on. And I also realized that architecture and even nonprofits and initiatives are very expensive, um, uh, both resources and the amount of people that you and relationships that you have to manage um, to build a building. Right, so that oh yeah, it's, it's a big project. It's a huge project. You know this. You've you've built out a couple. Yeah. Like and you, so you build a building in order to have a human experience. Right. Like that's what the architect does. You know. And it's like this, 
this amazingly esteemed thing, like you're shaping human experience, the engine, you know, the machine for living, like in Cabousier sort of idea. Um, and I was, as a young man, I was very into that kind of um, hierarchical relationship of being the designer of experience, right? Um, and then I realized the table is already designed. Um, it's maybe the first architecture, right? This, and we don't know how to use it anymore. It was a dirt floor, and then it was a rock. And just, yeah. yeah. And then it was a, like a fire where you roasted something, and you didn't want to burn your fingers um, when you went to eat the meat that you'd killed. And so you put a table at the same level, essentially, of where it was roasting. You just kind of moved it over. And then, and then you know, this other thing happened of concentrating calories. It's, kind of, like, it's pretty extraordinary. We talk about what made us human. We think about this evolutionary leap. And it, it has now been proven that Darwin was wrong. Um, and we made the evolutionary leap because we cooked. Um, and so apes have these incredible jaws, like big jaws, small brains, huge bellies, right? And they chew seven hours a day. Um, and humans chew 24 minutes a day. Um, wow. And so when you go from seven hours of doing an activity to 24 minutes, we lost the jaw size, right? And we had all of this room in our head. Fill it with the brain. Well, yeah, exactly. And the stove became the belly. So we had this belly, like a big cow's belly almost, that could like deal with nuts and berries and roots to a, a belly that can actually is streamlined because we cook, right? And so we got big brains. We're sitting across from each other around tables, eating, and then language happens. Right? You know, like, yeah. so, so I was like... Tables, way tables. easier. Yeah, tables, way, way easier than a building. It's way easier than a building. Don't have to build it. And you lose yourself in it. Like, it doesn't matter. If you think about the most memorable meals you've ever had, it's not at uh, Lutece or Noma, the French Laundry, like a respect for what those sure. guys create. But that's never somebody's most memorable meal. Like, it's never like uh, at a palace. It's always someplace where it's the people and the experience, and some like calamity happened or something, yeah. but it still was a great dinner. And what I learned from that was, um, you could create human experience anywhere. You could create the architecture of experience without the budget. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life working on tables. So <laughs> by working on them, not building, but building the human experience around them. Yeah, but we've built some tables. We have. Yeah, we have <laughs> so. like literally built tables to do some of the events we've done together. Yeah. So. So, you traversed the landscape from architecture to food. I'm going to fill in a couple of blanks yeah, here of course. so you don't Go have for to do it yourself. Um, uh, Restaurant tour in Portland. Mm -hmm. Did some really early interesting, like the concept, it was before the concept of farm to table and you were buying stuff from the people who were growing the food yep. in and outside of Portland, getting that kind of food at the table and building culture there for the, you know, at this time Portland's music scene was starting to shape up and, yeah. and, and combining culture with food in, a, in a, an establishment. And as you said right before we went live, um, I said something about, she talked about you as an entrepreneur, and you said, no, no, Endeavors as an entrepreneur needs to make money. Yeah, no, I'm a terrible <laughs> business person. Yeah. Um, so you weren't long for the world of, uh, of building restaurants, mostly because they didn't suit what I have come to know as your sort of vision and mission for your life, but convening people at a table was still core to that. Yeah. So talk about shaping the underground food movement of like dinners 
that were unsanctioned by the government and for, <laughs> yeah. for whom you, you were paid to bring people together, but there was no taxation, there was no, it was just guerrilla style, because um, you were the first person I knew doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, when I left the architecture world, um, after in the nonprofit world, I was like, wow, starting a nonprofit and dealing with all of these personalities was more than I knew. I didn't have the capacity for it when I was 23, 22, 23. Um, and so, and my partner at the time, Naomi Pomeroy, who's gone on to be um, a, you know, a renowned chef and James Beard winner, et cetera. Yep. Um, she was chef shows. Yeah, she's on Master Chef, et cetera. We have a beautiful daughter together. Um, she's an amazing talent. Um, but at the time, she um, didn't know what she wanted to do, um, was a very talented cook, and so we started a private chef company um, for her, and we, I knew a bunch of like the you know, glitterati and um, people who could pay for private chef um, services in Portland. And, so, but, and then we started getting catering requests, but we didn't have a licensed kitchen. Um, and I was like, well, that's fine. We'll, like, we'll cater for Wyden and Kennedy's like, uh, you know, annual party, um, holiday party, or for the mayor, or for Nike's uh, you know, executive team out of our, you know, our bungalow um, kitchen <laughs> right. in Portland using Weber grills because we couldn't keep up with the you know, thousands of people we were cooking for yeah. totally illegally. Um, and the, but it was a service industry. We were providing a service, and that started to weigh on me. And I was like, this isn't generative. Like, um, this is a nice idea, um, but how do we flip this? How, and, and what I realized was, at that time, that the restaurant world and the food world in general didn't have an underground, right? Um, there was not the garage bands. There was not grunge. There was not the Warhols, the Bas the all, every like great art form has an underground, yeah. right? A place where you can fuck up, mm -hmm. essentially where you can fail without high cost, right? And in culinary world, it was um, and take huge risks, huge you know, risks, potentially successful ones, but yeah, there's you're, yeah. You're, 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 there's you're lacking the consequences. Generally. Yeah, and so there was this huge missing again, this like adaptive valley or chasm, right? Like um, you would go to culinary school or you'd work for Wolfgang Puck. And then you'd go and find a million dollars because you had that much charm or talent or whatever. And then you open a restaurant and then you're Mario Batali or something like that. And then you're gone because, you, you know, you're an asshole. Um, but <laughs> um, but the, uh, that trajectory for me just wasn't um, that exciting. I felt like there was a whole missing um, potency in the culinary world. Um, and so I was like, let's create a culinary underground. Um, how would we do that? Well, let's create dinners in our living room. Let's create this idea called pop-up restaurants or underground suppers. It didn't really exist. I mean, for there, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's been ad hoc dinners throughout time. Yeah. Um, but I was also very inspired by the um, Paladores in Cuba, where people, um, because they um, didn't have the money to feed their families, were um, turning their living rooms into restaurants um, and risking being put in jail slash who knows what yeah, at that Cuba. point in Cuba. Um, and I was like, well, this is going to be lower risk, um, but let's turn our living room into a restaurant. And so we started a thing called Family Supper. Um, and within six months of doing these um, dinners where people would come and leave money in a jar, um, and it was illegal, and you know, we didn't have any of the licenses from a food handlers, from, you, you name nothing. it, we yeah, didn't nothing. have it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You, not you name it, we had it. No, it was you name it, we, we didn't, didn't have, have yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, totally. We were breaking it till we made it kind of thing, breaking every law. Um, and um, within six months of doing these dinners in our living room, we were on the front page of the dining section of the New York Times of starting a whole new you know, movement and trend, um, which they didn't really have. Any, they call us and they're like, who else is doing this so we could say it's a trend? <laughs> I was like, we don't know. There's no, we don't know of anybody else, right? And New York Times wants to break every trend, or used yeah. to. I don't know what they want to do anymore. But um, the, you know, the, it, it was two things that kind of smelled like us um, in an article, you know, on the thr fringe and thriving. And then all of a sudden, we became the poster children of this idea, um, which for me, even though the press was seductive for a while, the real interesting thing for me was to get the idea out that you can use whatever you have. Um, anybody can use you know, whatever surrounding them, whatever apartment, whatever warehouse, whatever vacant lot um, they have available to them. And they can create an experience where they try out their craft, both as a chef, right? Because sure. a big part of this was the culinary, mm -hmm. but also just as a person who's interested in phenomenology or experience design, right? Because that's what. A, a successful restaurant or a successful culinary experience is as much about the experience as it is about the food. For sure. And, 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 I, and we saw it take off. And now there's, you know, there's restaurant, pop-up restaurants everywhere. Yeah, right. um, and, you know, occasionally I'll go into one and they're like, wait, it's you. It's like, you. I was like, oh, shit. It's you. <laughs> Undergrounder. Yeah. So that was, a, that was an interesting chapter. And then it turned into a, um, a restaurant group slash art incubator. And that was exciting to see Portland, as Portland was, had all of the components, but it hadn't, um, it was like a gaseous state before the universe that is the now Portland that we know had formed. And, you know, we, we would have Miranda July um, and the Decemberists and Modest Mouse and Gus Van Sant and, you know, and then like a bunch of experimental artists you've never heard of, you know, all like in our establishments um, constantly you know, and incredible writers, and Gore Vidal would, you know, can't, and like, so all of these people were intersecting in our, um, in our kind of public eateries, um, and, but it wasn't sustainable, and, we, and it blew up in an uh, extraordinary fashion, but. Fiery. Yeah, but I learned a lot from that. Yeah. Um, and. So, you said something in there which I think is really, I want to put a pin in it, and that is that you, that anyone can do whatever their craft is with whatever they have with them. Yes. And I think that's a very, very important, and that, you know, you know the audience super well, you're very familiar with Creative Live, and a partner and a friend and a, a co-conspirator in this thing we've been building for a long time, but that's, I think, a huge important takeaway, that your first things, were you just built what you had with what you had. Yeah. Or what you didn't have with what you had. And and to me, that's a, it's, usually it's a, that is a barrier for so many people. I can't do this because I don't have X, Y, Z, the things I see on TV. In, in yeah. that world, you would have been, oh, it was a commercial kitchen, and right. it would have been all this, you know, a half a million dollars worth of things. You're like, do I have heat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I have a table? Yeah. And do I have a small group of people that I might be able to put around this table and try my craft? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, mean I, I always say let's start by starting. Uh, the most terrifying thing in any project um, in any discipline is the white page, right? Like it is, um, talk about um, an oppressive idea, 
right, or an oppressive phenomenon yep. is the blank page, right? Put something on it, right? Put the worst shit on it, you know, like just put something on that page. Do something, start by starting, um, has always been my mentality. It's a super powerful concept, I think, for any discipline. You know, ironically, we're, we're about to talk about your book. Yeah, talk about a white page. Speak, yeah, start, as, <laughs> speak, start as a white page. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of white pages. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, you, that was a, a great narrative to introduce um, the idea of getting people together uh, for a cultural experience, in that case, uh, around food. Um, and I had the, uh, for, for what it's worth, a little backstory about us. Um, a funny story about, our, I, will, I will tell the story of our first meeting. Yeah, yeah, please which um, it was shortly after your fiery end to your restaurant tourism. You moved to Seattle, and we knew someone in the press who was fond of both of our works separately. Mm -hmm. His name is Nathan. Nathan, if you're listening, thank Nathan you. Nathan Hambly. Yeah. Um, and he's like, I don't remember. He was at my photo studio once, and he's like, do you know Michael? And I was like, I know the name. Is that was a guy from Portland. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. It's like, you guys have to get together. You have to. I was like, okay, cool. I'd love to meet the, you know, how yeah. many times does have someone say, you gotta be my buddy. buddy. It's like a thousand yeah, times yeah. that you've heard that in your life. And, uh, and so I didn't think much of it. And then we would every, you know, few weeks or a month, I'd see Nathan just around the city and say, no, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. And I remember getting a call and like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday or something. And it's like, remember Michael yeah. Hab? I was like, yeah. He's like. I'm going to pick him up, I'm going to get lunch, and I'm bringing lunch and Michael to your studio, yep. and I'm gonna put you two guys together. And 45 minutes, this lovely gentleman I've never met before, <laughs> and my other friend Nathan, and, and Paseo sandwiches. Yeah, and when Nathan took off. Too. And he left. Yeah, yeah. He, was like, he just put the food yeah, yeah. in the middle of the table yep. at, at my then Little photo studio. studio, yeah, and drove away. And we're <laughs> like, Cool, I guess, and, and I'm gonna uh, improvise here because I don't remember exactly what we talked about, but it was a very engaging conversation. And by the time we parted ways in that first, our first date, our first mandate, yeah. we had a project we were gonna do together. Yep. And that was getting amazing musicians together, combining them with uh, dinners. Great so, chefs. Yeah, yeah, great chefs, um, award-winning chefs from Seattle and, and other places and do a series of dinners um, called Songs Reading and Drinking. And we did that. Yeah. And it was wildly successful. Yeah. People still talk about those dinners and I have a feature film in mind. Yep, that we're I think gonna, we still need to. Yeah, yeah, we need to sew that together. Um, but what the, at the core of that was my background in making photos, media, helping create ideas that spread your background of creating culture, conversation around a table, mash that shit together and we've got something. Yeah. And I think in why I chose to go into that story now is because that is making something where there was nothing. Yeah. It's literally, it wasn't just like, oh cool, let's be friends and talk for the next five years and plan the thing we're gonna do. It's like, hey, you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Cool, let's do some serious shit together. Yeah. But just start, and then I think it was probably four weeks later we, we had Done. our first dinner. We had our first dinner, and With, we yeah, had people. you know Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam and Fences, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, and all of these incredible people. Yeah, yeah. And, and we went on to do many of those. So starting is incredible. Yeah, and it's the most valuable thing you can do. So now I'm going to pivot back to that blank page. Yeah, 
because getting people together around uh, over food or convening them, and you've, you've just kicked this book off. Um, I think we're your first interview, your first piece of press before you're, you, just, you yeah. just came from something, your second piece of press around your new book called Let's Talk About Death. Yeah. And then the over dinner is a little bit of an homage to your past. Yeah. But I'm going to just say what it is. It's like, let's talk about death is not the thing that you want to, hey, you want to come over to my house and we're going to talk about death. <laughs> so, and, but we also talked before we started rolling cameras that it's not really about death. It's about death. Yeah. But it's really about life. So, A, congratulations on the book. Thank B, you started having dinners and talking about death long before anybody I knew was willing to have that conversation in public. Tell me about the blank page and tell me, t like, why do people care about having a conversation around death? Yeah. Well, for so many reasons. But let's, let me give you the kind of how we got to this book um, quickly um, because it's kind of a leap from, uh, you know, Portland dinners with Gore Vidal and, you know. Yeah, Modest Mouse. Modest Mouse. <laughs> so um, I, st I spent about um, 10 years after Portland really kind of understanding how the dinner table and small other salons and other small gatherings of humans um, and major stakeholders could change national and even international conversations about um, really important topics. Right, so we know how the media works to try to shift or sh um, shape conversations, and then there are those smoky back rooms, right? Like where a lot of the chess pieces are actually moved. And so I got lucky to be invited into a lot of those smoky back rooms to talk about um, some of the, to talk about death, to talk about gen um, gender inequity, to talk about um, pay uh, or or you know. Uh, pay gaps to talk about homelessness to talk about um, you know e even so far as bringing presidents together um, President uh, Kagame from uh, Rwanda and former President Mary Robinson from Ireland together to talk about ending genocide um, they'd both dealt with genocide and um, the Clinton Foundation asked me to bring them together and provoke them into conversation so I had taken this idea of the table as a cultural site as a place that, you know, I was like, people need to learn how to just eat together again and have it be fun and not just, you know, entertainment, but actually be really engaging, yep. participatory. So that was the first stage. And then it was like, how do we go even deeper, right? How do we make this a place where lives are, lives other than the people that are at the table are impacted for the positive, right? Yep. And so, um, so I went into the hardest conversations I could possibly think of and was willing to moderate and create those experiences. Um, which was phenomenal. Like yeah, I saw, you did it for all sorts of different foundations. Like you mentioned the Clinton Foundation. Obama's, Obama's like you name it, like cra yeah. crazy shit. But, um, and, but, and I could do that forever, but the thing is like, I can't invite you to those dinners, yeah. right? There's only so many people at those tables. I can't share it. I can write about it and you can, you know, look in story. from I behind it. A, yeah, and that's... recorded lots of dinners. But. Yeah, and, and that's kind of cool, but I was like, how do I actually share this profound experience of deep human connection, deep self-knowledge um, at the table with millions of people. Like, how does it scale? Mm -hmm. How does the, un, the, like, the thing that can't scale, the very finite dinner table, how does it scale, right? Um, and so I was like, I need a topic that I can build a, um, almost like a board game. Like, 
how do I gamify dinner, right? Like, um, we play board games after dinner um, around, you know, sometimes completely inane things, but we get to know each other better. Like, how do I make a very deeply meaningful experience over dinner um, and have a million people have that experience, right? And so I um, stood looking around for a topic, and then I, I, I came across death. <laughs> like, stumbled across. Showstopper. Showstopper. Quite literally. Bump, bump. <laughs> <laughs> We're here all week. Um, so the... The thing, the thing that, it was this perfect storm, right, um, that I, I walked into. And sometimes you know this as an artist and creator. You have those moments where um, you have one conversation and everything changes for you, right? And I had that conversation on a train with a couple of physicians. And they didn't know each other and I didn't know them. And um, they had left the, our current medical system, which we all know is broken, right? Um, and and they would both left it because they were just so frustrated with our current medical system. And... Um, and I was like, well, what's the most broken thing? If it's so broken, what's the most broken thing? And they both said how we die, right? Two people that don't know each other, don't know me. And I'm like, this is six years ago. How we die, um, the good death, um, conscious dying, um, hospice, um, palliative care, all of these catchphrases that are now front page everywhere all of the time, mm -hmm. um, were nowhere in the landscape, yep. right? Um, and so for me, it was, and I said, what do you mean how we die is broken? Um, like, you, you die. Like, how can that be broken, right? Yeah. And they said, well, it's very, there's one statistic that really um, illuminates this. Um, and it's that 75% of people want to die at home, and only 25% of us do. So in the United States, a country that prides itself on the rugged individualism, on agentic lives, on making our own decisions, um, we're, half of us are not getting what we want for one of the most critical parts of our lives or our loved ones' lives yeah. is their passing, right? Why are we dying in hospitals when we don't want to? And it was, so for me it was like, wait a second, we're, and the answer to that is, right, we're not getting the death we want for ourselves or our loved ones because we're not talking about it, full stop. Like nothing else is wrong other than the fact that we don't talk about death, right? And so when you don't talk about death and you don't know what your loved ones want and you don't know how to honor them, the default from a, you know, the medical field is very expensive. They'll throw everything at keeping you alive, right? Um, and, and it prolongs your grief if you haven't figured out how to honor your parents, yeah. your spouse. Like, you want to know what they want because it's very hard to grieve somebody and to complete the grieving if you haven't figured out how to honor them. And so I was like, holy shit, like we have this financial crisis because it's, it's bankrupting Bankrupting us. people. Yeah, it's the number one cause of bankruptcy in the U.S. is, is end-of-life expenses. Wow. Number one, right? Not number 10 or 11 or 62. Yep. One. Yeah, biggest expense in their broken medical system, right, is, is the last, you know, is the end of life, right? I was like, okay, so we have a financial crisis around this. We have an emotional crisis. We have a communication crisis, and we have an opportunity to treat repression, you know, repression and shame around a topic. And you know, one of the things that I've learned through having difficult conversations is repression leads to disease, right? And that's not just I've uh, wa I've been I'm not Gandalf. I haven't been alive long enough to see. <laughs> 
You know, I'm not Gandalf. That's the, that's the tweet from this. I'm not Gandalf. Michael Head quote: I'm not Gandalf. <laughs> uh, I haven't been able to see you know the, your repressive aunt die of X because of her the fact that she won't talk about money, sex, death, drugs, or whatever it is. Um, but luckily, it's been clinically proven that um, repressive styles um, create metabolic disorders and create autoimmune disorders. So we're talking about cancers, we're talking about all of these things have a direct relationship to how, if Shame, we- Shame, suffering, grieving, yeah. Yeah, how loss. we talk, yeah, repression. Mm. So I was like, wait, death is, an, is a doorway. This conversation, the most taboo shit in our culture that loves to talk about everything, right? Yes, so we think. Yeah. Or so we're brand, rather, we've branded it that we love to talk about everything, but we really don't. Yeah, millennials share everything. They share about their, you know, the poop they had in the morning or the blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, but they won't talk about death. You know, like, so let's, like, let's look at the thing that we repress most. Um, let's put that into a box, a conversation um, over dinner, and let's scale it. You know, and people are like, you're crazy, right? <laughs> I remember I called it Matt Wiggins, you know. Oh, we have yeah. a friend who's a leader in the uh, healthcare space, and I was like, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create this thing called Let's Have Dinner and Talk About Death. And he's like, you're crazy, it's not going to work, but I'm totally in. <laughs> and, that's, how, that's how we roll as our little posse. It's yeah. like, it's, it's never going to work, but let's try it anyway. Let's try it anyway. And lo and behold, so we created this thing, deathoverdinner.org. Um, it's a basic toolkit. Um, to, for how to have a dinner, um, talk about death, whether you, you yourself or someone you love is terminal, um, whether you're grieving somebody, whether you just want to be um, prepared, um, whether you're a doctor or a nurse and you've, or somebody who's been close to a traumatic death, um, and give them individualized scripts based upon why they might want to have that conversation. Um, we built it for $11,000. Um, we put no money behind it for five years. Um, five years since its launch, there's been over a million people who've sat down and had this dinner um, in 30 countries, right? Um, so it worked. <laughs> so the punchline is it, it worked. worked. It worked. So again, this idea of like what is, um, what's a project that you can do for very little resource, right? That's incredibly disruptive and transgressive, right? But very beautifully designed because mm -hmm. Um, we put aesthetics at the highest level with um, any of these projects. It's always been very important to me. Beauty is actually creates change. Um, but, you know, and then to have it reach millions of people, make their lives better, reduce that gap between the world that I live in and the world that I want to live in. Um, of course, there's people like Trump and some other players that push this gap out yeah. for me. <laughs> it's like, come on, I'm making some headway. Um, but, you know, there's, uh, there's always that. Um, so that's kind of, that was the, the setting for, um, for the book. Yeah, there was a, a physical event that you were able to scale, create a platform. I'll call it like a physical platform. Yeah, platform. I, like, yeah. um, I think I like that word because it simplifies the concept. And then, of course, you're able to, to uh, write the book. There's a bunch of people who wanted you, came to you and said, this is a perfect topic for a book. It obviously yeah. needs to happen. But talk to me for a second about, you said in that description that for, for those folks at home, yes, we're talking about death and it's an important topic. And yet it's really a conversation about life. Yeah. Right? Because in 
just sells less books. Let's talk about life. Yeah, right. Well, even like, um, let's have dinner and talk about life, or life over dinner. Yeah, so, said no one. Yeah, it was it's like never covered not, by editorial. Not, yeah, no, one in, no one writes that in the New York Times. No. But what it really is, is it's facing our mortality, which is, that's one of the reasons it was really important for uh, A, me to have you on the show, um, B, get this conversation out into the tribe that we've built here yeah. at Creative Live. Um, because as creators and entrepreneurs who are passionate and curious about building something, I think there's a, a lesson to be building things that are of value to you, that you personally uh, have experienced or have um, caused pain that you need to work through. And I think helping one another have the conversation about life, are we living the life we want and how do we manage and contribute and heal and all of the the remedy, the, the or sort of like pre-remedy the things that are going to go wrong if we don't live the life that we want. Yeah. Disease, if you will. It's like right. preventative disease by living our best lives. So well, yeah. give me some context there. Well, especially since we're talking primarily to creatives, mm -hmm. right? Um, the, uh, the conversation um, can take, we can talk about death medically, we can talk about it um, philosophically, we, but let's talk about it in the creative process. Um, you know, I, wanted, I want to give people access to um, the kind of lexicon of death. Like, instead of it just being this room you don't go into, right, or if only the brave go into, let's open it up and see what's in there, mm -hmm. right? Let's unpack this, this thing. Um, and when I think about it from death as a transformative um, idea, death as a transformative phenomenon um, and the creative process, if you think about nature, right? Nature is arguably the greatest creator. I mean, not even arguably, let's yeah. just go, Boom. greatest creator, right? Yep. Like, we got things like mountains, we got volcanoes. Like us. Things fly, yeah, humans. Like, yeah, yeah. Human, like a few things. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, ostensibly, you know, uh, responsible for everything that we know of, yes. including our thoughts, like Mother Nature, boom, greatest creator. So if we look at an nat nature, like, and even the most simple, we can get really into some very sophisticated nature metaphors, but let's just look at, um, basic, you know, spring, summer, fall, winter, right? Okay, so winter has to happen. Everything has to die for spring to happen, right? Like that, that it's just, if you imagine um, summer, fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, we're all going to become compost, yeah. right? Because like, literally, <laughs> it's, it's too many things on the planet. Too many things. Talk about, it's like the internet's kind of like that, right? <laughs> we don't know how to kill shit on the internet. We don't know how to winter the internet. Yeah. And so we have this accumulation and we get lost in things. But nature shows us that um, death is an opportunity. To, and so it's, for me, when I'm talking to creatives, it's what in you needs to die for the thing that you're meant to be doing to show up, right? So there is something standing in between you and the, and the work that you want to create, unless you're living it. Yeah, if you're living your best self right now, kudos. But yeah. most of us aren't. Yeah, yeah and then, but the thing is, if you're living your best self, in six months you might not be because something in you has to die in order to get to the next place because we're, you know, we're dynamic, right? And, and people like you and I know that we have to shed Constantly, we get we become really good at shedding skin. We get really good at not getting attached to our own ideas, our own egos about things, right? Um, and we like there's so many ideas. How many ideas have you had that was like that idea didn't? This isn't the right time, or I was just off, yeah, right? You have to be like a lot, yeah. Like, and then I walk, watch a lot of friends that are like, I can't 
break through and they're carrying around all of these ideas that clearly are not about right now or they're not the right person. And it's like, let that shit die, right? And then, and it's, you know, this goes to any, you can attach it to your relationships. Are you not happy in your relationship? Okay. Like a lot of people aren't happy in their relationship because they think of marriage um, as not a death ritual, right? Like here's the press release. Marriage is also as is, is much about a living ritual as it is a death ritual, okay? A bunch, a new person is born, a new union is born when you get married. Mm -hmm. You know who dies? The single you, yep. right? The single you is dead when you put that ring on your finger and if it's not, your marriage is gonna be dead, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> there's no question about it, right? So it's like when you start to, instead of avoiding death as this like scary thing or trying to be, um, you know, we fetishize it like with our horror film industry. We want to be like, you know, electrocuted by it and through fear, um, which just shows that our curiosity, but it's such an unhealthy relationship. If we just turn and look at it, we see these, these opportunities to utilize it as a transformational you know, methodology. Um, and so, it, I, you know, for me, it's not spooky at all. Yeah. Um, and to get to your point, um, the book's not about death. The dinners aren't about death. Um, we don't know anything about death, right? There are no death experts. There are no experts in death. There are no <laughs> death experts, right? So let me tell you about death. Yeah. like or You're lying. Right. Yeah. Med medically, people who've observed it, there's a lot of data on it, but that's also not what death is, right? That's an observance of it, and 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 also the medical, the medical exposition of it, yeah, is woefully inadequate. Yeah. So how, what lens have you put on it in the book to help us capture it? Yeah. Well, essentially. Um, and, and you're right, we have medicalized death, and it's a community act. It's a human act. It's not a medical act. Um, the, you know, the thing, we have raised the idea of, like with Atul Gawande and Breath Becomes Air, and um, an incredible amount of people, starting with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and actually going way forward, and um, all of the, the mystics throughout time, and all of the philosophers have been talking about death, right? Philosophy is born out of um, out of mortality, but there's a lot of people right now who've done a great job of showing us that our system is broken or showing us that we need to really consider um, you know, our end in a very thoughtful way and that there's an alternative. But what I felt like was missing is very practical, engaging, narrative, story-based um, tool, you know, a tool like a, um, I don't want to say it's, it's, it's a guide, but it's the book itself is really meant to be um, this invitation to go into these dark canyons with me to say, like, let's talk about every different types of, of death there are. You know, um, let's talk about the scary ones like suicide. Let's talk about the fact that um, your parents are probably going to die before you. You hope in some ways, um, and the fact that it's difficult to talk to the people in your life about them. Let's just like put that on there. I'm not saying, even though death is all, this great topic that's going to change your life and make you, you know, more attractive and um, have better sex and all of these things, um, which it will. But, and we can talk, there's actually a study done at Harvard that um, meditating on death makes you funnier and it makes you laugh more, right? Like, so it's like, 
<laughs> it has all of these like. There's so many upsides to there's death. There's so many upsides to death. Uh, I feel like now we're Get on like now. late night TV, right? And <laughs> well, luckily you don't have anything. You're like you're, you've got one coming to you, um, and I'm not going to sell it to you. But um, the uh, where, where were we going? We the, were going that there is a medical study. No. Oh. Uh, makes you say, oh whether you're getting this is sexier, better looking, more exciting to have the or have the conversations that other people aren't willing to have. Yeah, so we need help in that because yeah. we've forgotten. It's like we've forgotten how to cook and we've forgotten how to pickle and we've forgotten how to make, you know, Sunday gravy that your grandma used to make. We've also forgotten how to broach the topic. Like I kind of think about it like sex. Um, if, um, if death, if we treated death like sex, the conversation of death like getting laid, right? So you go to your parents, um, or you go to your spouse, whatever, listen, since it's about sex, let's make it your um, spouse. Um, and you're like, hey, honey, I think we should talk about, the, you know, do our wills or something like that. And she's like, eh, no, eh, no thanks, right? And you'd be like, oh, okay, she doesn't want to talk about it. You come to me and you say, I tried to talk to my wife, she doesn't want to talk about it, full stop. And I, and I, and I said, well, um, have you ever, um, you know, wanted to um, make love to your wife and have her not be interested? Yes, okay, then did you stop trying to make love to your life forever, right? right? Or like when you were courting? Not now or is not now? Not, not forever? Yeah, not yeah, exactly. So if we treated it like courtship or getting laid, obviously respectfully and consensually um, in all cases, and with death, and consensuality is actually key. Like you never force anybody into a conversation about, and you, about death and you never surprise them, right? So, and again, it's like sex. 100% consensual, 100% communicative, but you do not be like, hey, pizza night, we're having a death dinner. Like, <laughs> Recipe for disaster. Totally, it's not cool. Yeah. Um, but treat it like courtship, because we want to know these things. And um, to your point that the book's not about death, there are no experts in death, no one can tell me what's on the other side. If you have a near-death experience, that's awesome, and, and maybe you saw something that we don't know. Um, and I honor anybody who's had a near-death experience, um, and there's wisdom to be gleaned, we just don't mm -hmm. know exactly what it is. Um, but the thing about um, this book, about the dinners, about any conversation, I don't care if you use my tools or anybody's tools um, or any inspiration, um, what's actually at play are two things, um, and that's human connection um, and knowing yourself, right? So when we talk about um, really any vulnerable topic, but especially death. Um, death has the um, benefit of not being, not having a lot of like interpersonal drama. Mm -hmm. Like we all face it. Um, there's no hierarchy. Um, and so, and there's, again, there's no experts. So, but when we face death, um, we learn, it's the quickest way to learn about yourself, to learn about your priorities. Hmm. Like, what do I want at the end? Okay. And then what do I want between now and the end, right? Like, what do, you this know. is, and when you talk about like the the undercurrent that this show is largely based on that creative live exists. My mission and vision for not only is are we creating art and experience and all this thing, but we're literally creating our own lives. Yeah, every every day of it. So if there's something that's going to bring an end to that, like what what do I got to do between now and end of days yeah. to feel incredible, to feel whole, to feel human, to feel like it was a life well lived. 
puts that into some serious perspective. And the thing that puts that into perspective is death. Yeah, it's the strongest medicine out. Like it's just like <laughs> death, the strongest medicine. Yeah, it really is. Like you will get in touch with your priorities, your values. You want a mission statement for life? You know, face your mortality. You'll get your mission statement, right? I promise you. Uh, can I share a story? For yeah, of course, little, little please. Tangent? So, um, one of the reasons that Creative Live exists and that I shifted my mission and vision from, I say just, but just focusing on being a successful independent artist with the working studio and to be clear I was absolutely living my best dream life of all time making you know, way more money than I could ever spend or ten times what I thought it was possible to make or my parents had made traveling around shooting snowboarding and skiing out of a helicopter with my friends yeah that good, pretty dope dude as as bad as, <laughs> yeah. as badass as that is I was caught in an avalanche yeah. in Alaska and by every measure. I haven't talked a lot about this publicly. Um, I have it on my list of shit to do. Mm. Um, but I was caught in, in an avalanche that for by every measure I should not have lived through. Mm -hmm. And I remember all of the things that you're talking about. If you've, you've never, if you've ever come up this close to it yep. and escaped it or near death or whatever, let's just say it crystallizes a lot of shit. Yeah. And it was literally in the 24 hours after that experience that I said, wait a minute, I've been running around beating my chest, doing all this stuff that I thought was sort of what I was put on this earth to do. But I realized that that is, like, that is the shortest, smallest version of myself that I want to be out in the world. Yeah. And so what is it that I, were you having fun prior to this? Absolutely. Is fun sure. and joy and beauty and hard work and all those things important? Yes. How do we scale our ability to create the living and the life that we want? Because I tapped into that and it was amazing, yeah. but Creative Live exists literally because of my brush with death. Yeah. So I'm familiar with this yeah. of which you speak, yeah. and I believe it is the most powerful medicine. Yeah. I digress a little bit, but I. That's just, not digression. That's, okay. that's exactly what the book is, right? What you did, like, um, it, I, I created a moment where people could share these stories with me, mm -hmm. how death actually gave them more life, right? And so that we could start to understand it not as this thing to the avoid, but like how to get the most out of the fact that we're mortal, right? So that we're comfortable with it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I'm just thinking about how uncomfortable I'm right now. Right, yeah. And how I, I even qualifying it, like I haven't really told so, this story, yeah. but I really need to tell it, and it's still in my backpack of shit to do. Yeah. But it's interesting that it keeps finding its way to the bottom of the backpack. Every time I reach in the backpack to tell a new story or to bring out a new chapter, it's funny how the death thing and my brush with it, it goes way down because I don't know, I don't have the words, I don't have the stories. Is it egotistical? Is it helpful? It's certainly painful, very emotional. Yeah. Um, anyways, thanks for helping me recover that for a second there. No, it's, I mean, that's like, the permission is key. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, and the thing is what you, what you did was you were authentic um, you were emotive, you were vulnerable. These are all the things that men actually need right now to get out of the shit that we're in, right? Like, w men are having a really hard time, um, and they deserve it to be having a hard time. Yeah. But, like, you know, th what you just showed us was, like, hey, that, this is what we want out of people, leaders, right? We want them to be able to reach down to the bottom of the bag and tell us the hard thing, right? And it just ha it happens with death. It's this mirror, mm -hmm. right? 
And so, and it took me saying, hey, you want a mission statement for life? Like, boom, and you're like, yeah, wait a second. A bell goes off in my head, and that yeah. actually how I got my mission statement was by almost dying, right? Yeah. Um, and that's the, you know, that's what I got to sit down with. I took, oh, there's 100 interviews, 100 people I've had dinner with, 100 people that I've um, really gotten into their bottom of the backpack story. Um, and some of them are really, like, some of them are just beautiful stories. Some of them are funny stories, and some of them are like, you know, I lost a child or, um, or I was impacted by suicide. But what I want to do is bring the same level of compassion and openness and invitation to somebody who's lost a child or somebody who's been close to a suicide. Because with those like extreme deaths, we cover them with shame and self-shame and no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to even know, like check in with the person, yeah. right? And so we isolate a person who's already probably isolated because of their family structure, or, you know, and so, for me, it's like, okay, so there's the part of um, this conversation that is self-knowledge. And the great thing about self-knowledge is that's how we get, that's how we heal ourselves, right? Like, like I, I don't care what any pill or what any, um, you know, membership to CrossFit or Pilates X will do for you. The thing that will do more for your well-being, for your longevity, for your vitality than anything else is self-knowledge, right? Like, you are your best healer. Yeah. Right? Um, it's built into our system. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Michael Mead, who lives on the island um, here in Vashon, tells this great story. He brought a, um, this uh, acupuncture master out to give um, a class to a group of people that were not acupuncture um, professionals. Um, and they figured that this man would stand up and put some pins and very, like, do a diagnostic and put some pins and save their lives, right? And so he said, he gave them all pins. And they were like, why do I have these acupuncture needles? Uh, and he was like, you stick you. He's a Chinese man. Um, he didn't speak very good English. And everyone, including Michael Mead, who had brought him there, was shocked. And he was like, no, no, no. And they were, they were like, what are you talking about? You stick you. You put the pin in where you think you need it. And he was like, to himself, he was like, you do it. And everyone was terrified, right? But then they did it, and then he'd go by and be like, yeah, you stuck yourself there because you've got a thyroid problem. And that's actually, you know, the meridian that is attracted to your thyroid. And you, so this information of like, we actually are our best healer. We know. We know. We know. And so if we want to, there's very, there's not a lot out there, really, when you look at it, that um, is a practice of self-knowledge, right? I don't have a lot of tools for it. We've got a lot of practices of self-improvement, yeah, right? Which is like what you practice grows stronger, but if you don't know yourself, what are you actually growing? <laughs> like, okay. Um, so I think that that's the first thing that... Self-knowledge. Self-knowledge. And then the other important thing um, is human connection, um, which is another thing we don't have a lot of tools out there for human connection. Going to your therapist is not um, an exercise in human connection, right? Um, but, and, and go to your therapist. It's a great way for self-knowledge if you want to go to a therapist. <laughs> yeah. I'm not against them. But um, human connection um, is, has been proven to be the number one factor in longevity, right? Your community. It's also, what most people don't know, is that a human child, if left alone, cannot survive. Not from lack of food or water. No. From touch. lack of touch. Remember what that's called? I'm spacing on it right now. Yeah, I can't remember. But um, it's... Yeah. It, we're social animals, and if you are wondering if this is a fact or not, 
human babies will die, not from lack of food, not from lack of water, but from lack of connection, lack of human connection. Like, yeah. So. Those, those friendly doctors called the Nazis practiced it in real life to, yeah. to learn that it's actually a, a yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. Um, so, Sorry about that. Yeah. No, here. no, it's, it's true. We're, we're human yeah. attachment. Um, you know, the, the, well, our friend, I, well, actually, I don't know if you spent time with Gabor Mate, um, but one of my mentors. Listen to him a lot. Yeah. Ferris uh, did an amazing interview with him. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Kate, Kate and I want to spend a little bit of time with him. I know you got to spend some time with him. Oh, a lot of time. He's, yeah, he's, he's done more for me than anybody else as a teacher, for sure. Um, but he breaks human um, vitality down to two things, attachment and authenticity. Um, and the attachment piece cannot be, uh, there's, there's no way around it. And the authenticity piece, there's no way around it. Um, we actually need to know what we want to be, need to be able to speak it in order to live um, a vital life. But the attachment piece, the human connection piece, is talking about hardship is the best way to get closest to the people in your lives, right? Conflict, you know, your perceived conflict, turning your your um, your uh, ship, your person toward conflict in your life, um, I, and you know, I, I'm not saying you go and do this with all of the conflicts in your life tomorrow, unless right. you feel like you have the skills. Yeah. But there is a conflict in your life called death if you're not talking about it, and it's a great testing ground to be like, let's talk about this hard thing because you're going to get to know about yourself and the people you love faster than any other way. Like, I've had every death dinner I've ever had, um, including one I did with you and Kate. Yep. Um, we've had um, spouses, um, married couples at the table. Every single time um, you will hear, honey, you've never heard this story before, or I've never heard that story, right? Like, yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. You can't have been together for 20 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> every single time. Yeah. And, you know, you see that this, and it's not like the person gets mad. No. No, they get all. like they soften and they're yeah. like, I love you in a new way, yeah. right? Like, I waited five years to have my mom and my brother at a death dinner because I was terrified, right? <laughs> right. You know, big yeah. death guy. Yeah. <laughs> talk about death, talk about death. <laughs> You're like, oh, I got this thing out there I got to do. I did, I did. Deep in your backpack. Yeah, no, I didn't want to do it, you know? Uh, and, um, and I did. And I tell you, that, like, my love and respect for my brother and my mother like doubled in that evening, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, like, you can take that to the bank, right? Yeah. That just feels good, yep. right? Those are, like, endorphins that heal, you know, it's yeah. like... Very therapeutic. And, yeah. So, extraordinary um, canvas. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot of... Like I apologize no, to like the, all of the spaces. Do not go. do not apologize. It's an extraordinary canvas, and again, this sort of like, what are you doing now? What are you doing to you know those two things again? Attachment, like what are the what are the the blocks that are keeping you from doing the thing, or what are you attached to, and what are you holding on to that you should let go, and what are you not grabbing on to that you should? Um, and the connecting part, yeah. like I think that. We all, when we're looking inside, for example, that's where the creative force in all of us comes. The things that yeah. made you weird as a kid are going to make you fantastic as an artist or as an adult if you can connect with those things. Yeah. So you've, you've set the table for us, bum, bum, shh, metaphorically, yeah. we're here all week. Um, I'd like to open the book 
and read yeah. a couple of prompts. Because I, I th yeah, yeah, yeah. In in many ways, this is like a handbook. You, 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 the subtitle is an invitation and guide to life's most important conversation. And why I think that is true is because you can travel a million miles with this conversation, right? Yeah, you can. You're talking about one thing, but you're really talking about so many important things. And I Everything, think some of the yeah. prompts, why I think this is a book that people need to go out and drop the, drop the money for right away, because just listen to some of these prompts. I think they're, yeah. they're amazing. And maybe you can comment on a couple of them. Yeah, and let me set up the prompts for you slightly. Please do, yeah, yeah so please the, do. Um, one thing is um, Death Over Dinner is a singular project about connecting over dinner, right? This book is about having this conversation over beers, walk in the park, drive through Yosemite, wherever you happen to be, on a phone, etc. And I didn't want to make it like the idiot's guide to talking about death or how to, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we wanted to make it like incredibly useful where you could pick it up and tactical. Tactical. Yeah. Yeah. I guess more like tactical. And we're. we're I realize that we're flying at a thirty thousand foot level, yeah. but I think it's important. And when we, you know, when Grounded. we write the show notes for this thing, it's like. This is a tactical guide for having the most important sort of conversations with yourself and your loved ones, not just about death, but about what do you want for yourself in this life. How do we create, you know, close the gap between where you are and where you want to be? Yep. Chances are it's closer than you think it is if you sort of can live by some of these. Yeah, these are meditations. Yeah. These are walking meditations. These are community meditations. And so each chapter is actually a conversation prompt that you can drop um, propose, put into a conversation, like, like, um, like a, a game piece, yeah. right? And it is very effective. Yeah, I've very seen, effective. I've been watching you do this for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> just throw it. Just let me set this out here. I'm just not, not going to do anything. I'm just going to set this in the, metaphorically in the middle of the conversation and see what happens. And it just, you know, people ask, like, I know people that think of themselves as question askers. Like, this is next level shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what what yeah. you've done here. Well, before I start <laughs> yeah, no, just reading them, because I was going to read ad hoc, but do you have some favorites? No, no, I, I prefer the ad hoc. Like, let's, okay. let's see what happens. The I Ching, throw it. Okay. If you had 30 days left to live, how would you spend it? What would your last day be like and your last hour? Um... Yeah, it's not a light one. No. Yeah. How do you talk to your kids about death? Mm -hmm. I, so I don't, I'm not a parent. Well, you're a parent to many. I am a parent yeah. to many. I'm the funkle. Yeah. The fun uncle. Yeah, he's get, great. Yeah, my my um, daughters love him. I'm the fun <laughs> uncle. So I end up being, um, you know, dad by extension. But I observe, though, it does provide a lot of uh, a vehicle into which to see a lot of my friends as parents mm -hmm. try and do this. And I've watched this happen. Like you come across a dead bird or a bird hits the window, you go outside. It's like, yeah. it's like, what is the, or, or a family pet passes. Like how mm -hmm. do those conversations, I've witnessed those and I'm like, that is exactly why I didn't have kids. Cause oh my God, that is, it explodes my brain to think about how many elements of difficulty there are in that. So I think this is a, that's a very powerful one. That's one of my favorite chapters too. Um, What is the most significant end-of-life experience of which you've been a part? Mm -hmm. I think we've all, most often for worse, sometimes for better, but most often for worse, been a part of some or close to some sort of traumatic end-of-life experience where mm -hmm. we know someone whose life has been cut short. Um, 
sometimes it's very close, sometimes it's not so close. But I think that's heavy topic. Well, and also sometimes it's it's just beautiful. Yeah. Right. Because you get um, people who talk about experiences um, where you're like, "Wow, now that was a good death. Like that brought the family. That person died in their integrity. They mm -hmm. identify, and and it's really it's pretty extraordinary to hear the positive stories from that." What would you eat for your last meal? Yeah. You see, so yeah. there's, Again, there's that's, a that's the garden unlock. variety. For sure, garden variety. What would you eat for your last meal? I right. think that's, you know, some people are going to go to peanut butter and jelly with this crust cut off. I think it's, there's, it's telling. I think you, there's a lot of stories. We've, again, I've had the good fortune of alongside you or with your guidance participating in this discussion. Yeah. Um, well, and you want to give some easy, um, you don't want to necessarily have to dive into the deep end mm -hmm. immediately. Um, there, some of these are kind of, you know, they're not cliche, but they're accessible questions. For sure. You know, what would you, what song would you have sung at your funeral? Can almost feel like a fun, like dating, like yeah. a question you might put on like thirty-six questions to fall in love or a date kind of situation. Um, and you want some of those, like you want it for different, yeah. you know, um, but you you have no idea if you haven't asked your parents or your loved one or um, a best friend what you want their what their last um, meal would be like you're gonna learn something fascinating and you're gonna learn a story you're not just gonna learn like PB and J right. you're gonna learn why yeah exactly right? because my grandma used to make it for me yeah. and tell me about your grandma and then it's just it's a beautiful thread to pull yeah um, well I mean how often are we with people that we love in our lives when we're like um, you feel stuck right like date night oh I've had a busy week. I don't want to just talk about the cool shit that happened at work this week. Like, but what do I? How do I connect with my wife or the woman I'm dating or I'm out with my mom or my brother, or et cetera, And I don't know what to, you know. It's like yeah. sometimes like we just need questions that will you know really yeah. uh, have us um, sh show ourselves to each other. We want to be witnessed and we want to be seen. Yep. Right. You know. Um, and so I think that that's. You know, death's just one way, and it's like you know, there's uh, this book is not for everybody. For sure, it's not for and everyone. That's the other thing. But I'm I'm also at the same same time I'm trying to, like I know what these conversations have done for me, and so I'm I'm actually looking right in the camera. If you're listening, I can't look at you right now, but I'm looking <laughs> right at the camera, and it actually is a book for everybody. Like that's the punchline to yeah. me is, and to me that's part of. Uh, what's beautiful about the topic, because the topic is, is sure, there, there are conversations about death, but really that's the signal for what is it that you're doing now, what do you value, and what, what really gets that crisp. Yeah. What gets that crisp is, is like, okay, let's, and, and there, is the, there are, are those superficial experiences, but what I find is that's like the gateway, right? Yeah, Once sure. you have one of those, it's like, okay, cool, let's, you know, when was the last time if you've been with your partner, spouse, whatever, for a long time that you really found out something new about them? And what a joy. I, yeah. Ideally, it's joyful when sure. you find out something new. Maybe maybe not, but um, I think that's what this well, that's conversation. Intimacy. Yeah. Into me, I see, or whatever. You know, I, Esther Perel yeah. does this great thing. Um, into Yeah, into me, you see, or something into yeah. you, I see. But that, um, I mean, that's how, that's, Intrigue. That's eroticism. That's sexy. That's foreplay. Like yeah. it's all of those things, yeah. you know. Um, and it's also that's where you create you create the future, a more aligned future with each other, 
um, whether this is your business partner or yeah. your you know people that you go to work with, this changes work relationships, yeah. right? Like I've had people at work do death over dinner, or now we're, we have old doctors and nurses edition, right? So doctors and nurses will be doing these um, these death dinners, which wow. is phenomenal, right? But yeah, so. I'm definitely prescribing this book. <laughs> I love it. Dr. Chase. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> fortunately, I, I, I dodged medical school. Uh, but so talk to me about, like, obviously this is one project. You're working on a lot of stuff. Yeah. I think it's, it's important. Um, I think we'll be, this will be right on the cusp of this. I know you can pre-order it now. I know that. We've been friends for a long time. This is a huge, this is your, your focus, your current project. And, and uh, it's admirable, but it's, it's you've, you've taken so much of your past into it. It's, it's, it's beautiful. But I also know you've got all kinds of other stuff going at all time. <laughs> cooking, the metaphor of cooking is not lost on me. In fact, i got to have you over. We just, it's time to have dinner again, yeah, you and me. Um, but sort of put a bow on this for me, if you can. Just, like, how are you thinking about this project? What is, you know, what's part of your next project? And how should we think about Michael Hebb? What do you, what, what's your, put a bow on it for me. Okay, I'll try. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I know, um, but I'm like, I'm, I'm... You know, I'm not the five-year, 10-year, 15-year plan guy, so, but I'll tell you what's going on and what I'm excited about. Um, I mean, the book's huge. Um, a book represents this incredible opportunity to concentrate, like, all of your ideas, or many of your ideas in one place, and then have it be shareable. Yeah. Like, I've never had... Like most of my work is this ephemeral work, right? Yeah. Dinner. Were you there? Or dinner. Yeah. yeah. Were you there? Or can I talk about the experiences somebody else had? Which is also by just by secondary, right? It's almost like it because it's once removed. Like yeah. I'm telling you a story about a thing. About a thing that happened and is gone as ether. And so this is like I just want, I, I'd prefer to like buy the first 100,000 copies and just give them to people, right? My publisher and my bank were like, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, so, but the, the way that it, it's an opportunity to get the work about, um, death out there to a larger group of people for sure um, with the book but death over dinner itself um, we're launching in India which is huge um, with incredible support um, and I should back up and say um, all of my projects now get to um, exist in this collective called Round Glass um, oh, cool. yeah so I joined Round Glass which is almost like the Bauhaus of, of wellness right it's um, a, a, a school, a collective, um, an organization that has brought together 250 well-being leaders um, in India and the U.S. and Europe to say, like, what does the, how do we build a movement around well-being? Um, what would that look like? And so um, death over dinner gets to exist not just as this, or drugs over dinner, its um, sister or cousin, um, gets to exist in this, you know, with pediatricians and cardiologists and, um, and people working on public health policy and, you know, in um, Punjab and in Boston and, like, <laughs> and in Sweden, like, all over the place, right? Um, so um, this idea of conversation as medicine, yeah. right, um, were and, and folk experience, not just, it doesn't need a facilitator, right? So death over dinner is growing. Um, India, we're launching in Brazil. We'll probably launch in Mexico. Um, the book's being published in like uh, 12 different countries, uh, being translated into Portuguese, um, and we're talking to a few other translations. Um, we're going to expand um, Drugs Over Dinner, which is about addiction. Um, 
and um, we're working on a project um, with the Women's March founders um, about really important conversations. Um, I just launched Women Teach Men, um, which is a project that um, looks at the very difficult problem of misogyny um, and inequity um, uh, across gender gap um, and says, okay, we're here. How do we get to a better future um, working with men, not just blaming men, which is, you know, like what is happening that. has to happen. We've earned it. Um, but what would a next step look like? Um, how do we actually learn what we need to learn as men um, in order to re-enter the gender conversation, right? And so, you know, with Esther Perel and Gina Rudan and Tracy McMillan, all these amazing women, we just did our first hundred men gathering in Ojai, and it was transformational, right? Um, and so that's like, we're going to scale that, you know, that old scale like Death Over Dinner has. Um, and... Um, you know, there's there's like 25 other projects that, you know, it's like, we'll, we'll go into them, I'm sure, next time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what's the best place for folks to find you? Obviously, you just listed a bunch of very, uh, at their core, very seductive topics. Um, these are all conversations that we need to have. You're a master at facilitating them. Obviously, the, you know, let's talk about Death Over Dinner book is the, the gateway, but if people are going to sort of tap into the, Mainframe, yeah. You. Like, what's where? Where should we? Where should you send them? Of course, the book, number one, first and foremost. But anything else you wanna? Yeah, I mean, I think going to Round Glass. It's just Round Dot Glass, and then you'll see how um, these projects fit in with, um, you know, maternal health and um, you know, and projects in villages in India and like, you know, improving water systems and like, it. It's remarkable to see the tapestry come together. So, I mean, that's where I've kind of committing all of my energy right now, and it's exciting to see it, you know, in a collective. Super psyched for you. I'm, uh, as much as I've loved this conversation, we got a planned dinner, so I'm going to have to let you yeah. all go. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for sitting of with course. us, and uh, congratulations on the book. Um, I know you're just getting started with the press. Thanks for doing us first. Of course. And um, much success, bud. All right, buddy. All right. Till next time. Till next time. You know, All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, <laughs> Probably, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn. So check that out. They're just slash Creative Live or at Creative Live all over out there on the internet. All right. Until again, uh, probably tomorrow, I hope I'll hear you. I'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow, and I'll look for your comments on the internets. Bye.